Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Lauren McAfee, on the implications of the biblical truth that humans are made in the image of God. To be created in the image of God, it doesn't mean that we are God. So, of course, there's a level of humility there that we're not God. But there is some level of significance that we are created in His image. And that gives a level of uh, worth and dignity and value to every person that is intrinsic to who we are as a human being. Lauren McAfee, next. Lauren McAfee says all people have dignity because they are created in the image of God. This biblical teaching is a powerful motivating force among those who believe it to be of service to their fellow man. Lauren McAfee is co-editor along with Dr. David Dockery of the new book, Created in the Image of God. I last spoke with Lauren a number of years ago as she was traveling with an exhibit prior to the opening of the Museum of the Bible. Lauren, tell us a little bit about your background, your well-known family, and your involvement in ministry. Well, as you mentioned, we first connected years ago whenever I was working with Museum of the Bible, and they were having traveling exhibits while the museum was being built in D.C., And I had the privilege of um, traveling around, helping do those exhibits through the connection with my dad, who is the founder of Museum of the Bible. So um, my dad is Steve Green, who is founder of Museum of the Bible, as well as president of Hobby Lobby. And my grandpa, David Green, is the founder of Hobby Lobby. So I kind of have been a part of this business family. And whenever I finished my undergraduate degree, started working alongside my dad on the museum project and... So I've worked on, on the, at the museum, and now I'm at Hobby Lobby Corporate, so working on the, the business side with my family. And it's just a joy to get to work alongside family and especially be a part of organizations that have just wonderful kingdom purposes. So mm-hmm. even, even for the business, for Hobby Lobby, you know, my family sees the company as something that God owns, and we're stewards of it. And so we want to operate our business according to um, biblical principles and things that we believe would honor and glorify God. So um, my role in the company now is getting to be a part of the ministry investments or philanthropy department. So Hobby Lobby um, is able to make uh, financial contributions to great nonprofits. And so I get to be a part of the office to help serve in that. And it's, it's a great joy to just see what the Lord is doing around the world and around the country for so many of the organizations that Hobby Lobby has um, been a part of and supporting. Um, so that's what I do, as well as the fact that I founded a nonprofit in the pro-life space called Stand for Life and really trying to just be a bridge connecting the pro-life movement and many of the great organizations and people working in that space to care well for all of life and connect them with the church so that the church knows how we can be involved in our communities wherever the church is located and serve the vulnerable, serve those who are in need, and specifically facing an unplanned pregnancy. So we're kind of a bridge between the pro-life movement and the church in the work at Stand for Life. And I really got involved in the pro-life work and passionate about that through my family's experience walking through the Hobby Lobby Supreme Court case. 
So for people that aren't familiar, back in 2012, there was a government mandate called the HHS mandate that required all businesses to provide and pay for abortifacient drugs and devices as a part of the insurance plan. And Hobby Lobby's insurance covered many things and was it was a, it was a very generous insurance plan, but providing and paying for abortifacient drugs and devices went against our conviction about caring for all of life, including life at the very beginning stages of conception. So that led to a lawsuit against the government that became the Hobby Lobby Supreme Court case and the family won at that case in 2012, thankfully. And through that experience, walking through a national <laughs> Supreme Court case that was around this pro-life issue really got me deeper engaged and connected with so many life organizations across the country who were you know, praying for us and, and um, following along in the case. And I just really saw the beauty of the good work happening around the country and, and the opportunity to kind of connect there, the, the, the work that the movement is doing with how churches can be serving and really be the hands and feet of Christ in the pro-life work in each of our community, each of the church communities across the country. So that's how I got involved in Stand for Life and am grateful to have the opportunity to serve there. Well, can you give us a bit of an overview uh, of the message of Created in the Image of God, this book that you and uh, Dr. David Dockery edited, just kind of at the outset yeah. here? Right. So Stand for Life has had the opportunity to host a lot of convenings and gatherings and bringing leaders, church leaders, academics, people together to, to think through, to try and think deeply and think well about what are the theological uh, underpinnings that motivate our pro-life work. And so we were able to host a number of academics to talk about this concept of being created in the image of God. So in Genesis 1, the very first chapter of the first book of the Bible, we get this, this beautiful um, explanation of God creating all of things in, in our world. And, and man and woman are the last things to be created, and they're uniquely set apart in that they're created in God's image. And so that has a lot of implications for, for us in our life and in our world. And so the book that David Dockery and I got to edit was really just bringing together some of the talks that these academics and the papers these academics had and saying, hey, how can we put this together in a series of essays um, in the book that we now have just released called Created in the Image of God? And so it is, it is that. It is essays written by experts on different topics of what it means to apply this concept of the image of God being created in the image of God into different areas of our life. And so it's, it's a really lovely resource. And I mm -hmm. say academics wrote it, but it's, it is accessible. It's not, you're not going to have to <laughs> reread every paragraph yeah. and try and interpret big words. Like th these are academics who are uh, brilliant, but very accessible and wanted this to be a, an incredible resource for the church and for believers who want to think about this concept. Well, thank you. And of course, you're a, you're a seminary student yourself. You're working on a, a PhD in ethics and public policy, and hopefully we'll have time to ask you about that as well. But yeah. so can you help us to understand, and I, and I understand that it is rooted firmly in the book of Genesis, but what does it mean to be made or to, to be created in the image yeah. of God? I'll, I'll unpack some of this here uh, you know, briefly, but I believe that this concept of being created in the image of God is one of the 
most beautiful gifts to the world that the scripture has in terms of its truth teachings, other than the gospel, of course. The whole Bible is about Jesus and the gospel and our our ability to have salvation through Christ, his death and resurrection. But there are so many teachings in the scripture that too, as we live them out, bring about good and bring about flourishing for for the world. And I think the concept of of our understanding that all people were created in the image of God is a beautiful gift to the world, even for non-believers, because of the human dignity that it gives to all people. And so to be created in the image of God, it doesn't mean that we are God. So of course, there's a level of humility there that we're not God, but there is some level of significance that we are created in his image. And that gives a level of uh, worth and dignity and value to every person that is intrinsic to who we are as a human being that isn't based on anything else that we can kind of control. It's not, it's not based on kind of what kind of job we have or where we live in the world or, or how successful or unsuccessful we are or even things we can't control like um, uh, what color our skin is or um, what kind of family we came from. Mm-hmm. None of those things determine our value according to this principle. We all intrinsically have this value. And so that's a beautiful thing to be able to know and believe and understand about ourselves. So every person listening, you are a human being, you have this value. And so you have um, intrinsic, inherent value and worth that cannot be taken away regardless of circumstances in your life or the way other people see you. This is a truth that you can know and believe about your identity that gives us great confidence in in our value. That's that's really lovely. But it also means that we then have to see other people for their image bearerness. And so everyone that I come in contact with every day has the same value mm. of being an image bearer. And so that that should dictate to me how I treat other people. So, you know, everyone, even people that I come in contact with that are maybe difficult to deal with or I disagree with on a certain topic or, uh, you know, someone that cuts me off and maybe I'm frustrated and, you know, I still have to know they are a person that is still an image bearer. And so um, as we engage in the world with lots of topics, I think when we live out this theological concept well as believers and, and, and treat others as an image bearer, it brings uh, just a beauty into our world that I think points to the goodness and the glory of our Heavenly Father and our Creator. In terms of being created in the image of God, as you say, all human beings are created in the image of God. What do you believe, what implications does it have for this cultural moment? Yeah, I think there are a lot of cultural implications that believers can can grapple with that will really be rooted in this concept. So um, just, I'll, I'll, you know, kind of walk through a few mm-hmm. of those. Of course, the pro-life issue uh, is, I mean, I, I've already mentioned my involvement there and Stand for Life. Um, you know, we were hosting an event that kind of sparked the impetus for this book created in the image of God. But the kind of considering the fact that a life in the womb so if life begins at conception, and 98% of all scientists that are biologists who study kind of beginning of life would agree life begins at conception. And that's biologists, that was a survey of 2,000 biologists across the world of various kind of worldview beliefs mm. or non-beliefs. 
when they were asked that simple question at the scientific level, 98% said it's at conception. Like scientifically, that's what we believe. So, um, so if we want to go off the of science, we believe life begins at conception. Then, for believers who want to give value to life, to human life, um, that means we start that value with life in the womb. And so, when we consider, of course, that life is very vulnerable and it is dependent on the mother's, uh, the mother taking care um, of that pregnancy. Then um, we we apply this understanding to caring about that human life in the womb, but it also of course means we care about the life of that mom who is carrying that pregnancy. And in the pro-life issue, it can often be pitted the, the mom against the child. And um, you know, in political terms, often people will be on one side seem to be pro-woman and then on the other side be pro-baby. But on the pro-life side, we are pro-mom and child. We care about both of those lives because they both matter. Um, they both have dignity and value. And so the pro-life movement is about caring well for both. And so being mobilized to support moms and how can we care well for moms who are facing unplanned pregnancies and, and all of these implications that believers can grapple with to figure out how can we care about life in the womb as well as the the mom as, and you know the dad if he's in the picture and the family surrounding that um that pregnancy but then there's lots of other cultural issues too that christians are having to grapple with how do we engage with this um i think about uh you know artificial intelligence and um transhumanism there's a chapter in this book that kind of one of the authors dives into those issues and that's that's kind of the i feel like if we're looking ahead and looking to the future, that's what's down the road is having to grapple with this techno technological advances that we're facing. And how do we think about what it means to be a person and, and also now be engaging with all of this artificial uh, intelligence and what does that mean to kind of grapple with that? But as well, you have issues like um, how do we care about refugees mm. and how do we think about um, how we engage in being anti-human trafficking and how do we think about, um, you know, pushing back the darkness of pornography and the porno pornographic um, content that is now uh, so accessible. All of those issues really have a rootedness in what we believe about human dignity. Because if we care about the human dignity um, of people, that means people are not a commodity. And so for pornography that's making someone a commodity for again trafficking that's selling people putting people to work forcing them to do something against their will that's not valuing them um, as a person um, refugees thinking about the the climate of the vulnerable and caring well for those who are in really dire circumstances and are trying to flee to save their lives or their family lives. So how do we think about caring for them as a person that has value and not seeing them as someone to be discarded or someone who um, is to be commodified, but to see every person with this dignity is, is something that, you know, whenever you look at our world, there are so many challenges. There are so many things to grapple with as believers. And so hopefully this book is is going to provide some kind of unpacking this understanding a bit. Um, John, F., Dr. John F. Kilner is uh, just a brilliant um, 
scholar and theologian who has written an incredibly large book on the concept of kind of diving deep into the Imago Dei, the image of God concept. And so he's kind of distilled some of his highlights into a chapter in this book. So it's a great way for people to engage in this concept um, from kind of, again, like an accessible level. Mm -hmm. uh, and then and then these other chapters, people are diving into some of these different questions of what, how do we think about applying this to sanctity of life? How do we think about um, applying this to what it means to be male and female. There's a great article in here by Dr. Katie McCoy, who just uh, wrote a whole book again on this topic, but she's going to distill it into a chapter. So hopefully it's a great resource for people to apply this theological concept to issues that I know many believers are wrestling with and grappling with. And especially in this current cultural climate, there's no shortage of issues that this, this concept of the image of God can apply to for, for people's everyday lives. Well, the book is Created in the Image of God, Applications and Implications for Our Cultural Confusion. And as uh, my guest today, uh, Lauren McAfee, has been explaining, the book has many different contributors touching on uh, numerous issues that the understanding of being created in the image of God, that all human beings are, uh, applies to. Well, Je I, our time is so limited, um, Lauren, but I'm wondering if, it, can you give us kind of a quick snapshot of what Dr. Katie McCoy is saying and what it means to be male and female? Obviously, that's, uh, that's a subject which is uh, popping up all the time. Yeah, well, I do want to highlight her book. So Katie, she's amazing, just a brilliant young scholar who's um, contributed to a lot of different uh, books this, even just this past year. Yeah, she's just been a prolific contributor lately. Um, but she wrote a book that came out this year, I think it's called um, What is a Woman? Or What It Means to Be a Woman. And she really goes into depth on kind of gender and how we, kind of theologically, what do we see in scripture about gender and what it means to be male and female. And so she, again, like I said, she contributed to this chapter, shortened some of the main concepts that she covers at length in her book. But it it really helps to look at, again, if we're looking at Genesis, Genesis chapters one, two, three, we see this creation of man and woman, and they are, they're two distinct genders. It's not one gender, there's two. And so what does that mean to have genders? What are the differences? What are the similarities? Uh, looking at, of course, the similarity being that both being created in the image of God. It, was, it wasn't that one was and the other wasn't. Both were created in the image of God. Therefore, they both have equal value. And so that's lovely. That's beautiful. Man, women, men, women, equal value, um, equal dignity. But of course, there are distinctions there. God created um, man and woman different. And so she kind of just breaks down some of the, again, not in a stereotype way that our culture might try to say are what the distinctions of being female and male are, but theologically, kind of what are some of the identity and purpose that we each have and the beautiful roles that we we each have as male and female. And and again, the partnership together too, towards uh, as, as believers and people that are walking alongside each other in Christian community, how do we work well together and 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 see our talents and our gifts flourish in our specific genders. And so she, yeah, she really goes into that and does a lovely job. Well, as certainly uh, you, your own family. I mean, you you uh, kind of embrace this teaching in your uh, adopting of your own children. 
right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, my husband and I have adopted two children and we, even from early on in our marriage, even before we got married, we, I, I had kind of always wanted to pursue adoption because my parents had adopted. Um, so I have one sister that was adopted. And mm. so I've gotten to see that lived out mm -hmm. and, and uh, you know, my grandparents also had adopted. So I'm a third generation adoptive parent in my family. So I've seen this lived out, you know, this, um, yeah. this valuing of, of life and valuing of all people and um, wanting to live that out in authentic ways. And so I've wanted to pursue adoption. And so my husband and I um, did begin pursuing adoption uh, a number of years ago. And so we adopted one of our daughters internationally from China. And then we adopted our other daughter domestically um, here actually in Oklahoma where we live. So we um, are very grateful to be the recipients of the, the blessing of getting to be their parents. We can't believe we get to be our daughter's mom and dad and the gift that that is to us. And I, I, you know, often for people that think about adoption, I never want people to think there's some kind of, oh, you're amazing. You did this great thing. Cause it's not, it's just, we were being obedient to God's call. The Lord called us to this. And so it was nothing other than obedience. And, and we have been blessed by it, not the other way around. Like we are, we are the blessing or we get to have the blessing of being their parents. And that's such a gift. And we never want to take that for granted. And um, our, our older daughter faced cancer when mm. she was one and a half. And so we, it was just, it was such a reminder of just how precious life is and how fleeting it is to, to see your, you know, your baby, she was one, um, have to go through surgery and chemotherapy and so many hospitalizations and just the fragility of life was such a reminder of just the value of life. And it's one thing to, for me to talk about that and to, to try to live that out. But then when you're faced with, um, yeah. you know, uh, someone in your life that is facing a life or death circumstance, it really uh, holds a deeper weight than it has before that. So um, yeah, we're very grateful for our, our two girls and the gift that they've been to, to us. So your older daughter, she's doing she's doing well. Yeah, yeah, she's well. She's three years into remission now, so cancer-free and thankfully doing incredibly well, yes. That's wonderful. Well, our time is going quickly, Lauren, but I did want to ask, uh, even though, uh, and you've been talking about just this, this amazing biblical truth that all human beings are created in the image of God, yet the, the Bible also teaches that the image of God has been marred by sin. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I'm wondering yeah. if you can talk about that a little bit and, and the redemption that has been made possible for yes, human beings. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, this is, this is the bad news and the good news. So the bad news is that even though in Genesis chapter 1, we have this lovely gift of being created in God's image, we don't have to go far. We get to Genesis chapter 3 and the fall happens, sin happens, and Adam and Eve did not image God perfectly because they disobeyed God. And so so all now all of our world is affected by sin and the fall. And so that's why we see so many of these um, heartbreaking issues where the the value of all people is not upheld in our world. Like we like I've mentioned with trafficking, with abortion, mm -hmm. with um, all of these things that sin has brought into our world. And so while we were we are all affected by sin, that inherent dignity and value was not taken away. But we do, of course, not image God perfectly anymore. We cannot image God perfectly because we are sinful. And so every person 
is a sinner. And that's the bad news, right? But the good news is that we see God gave his own son, Jesus, the perfect image of God who lived the perfect life. And because of his death and resurrection, because of that perfect image of God, Jesus, we now have the opportunity to have the forgiveness of our sin and have a relationship with God um, when we you know, believe in him and, and, and ask forgiveness for our sins. And so that's kind of looking at the whole of scripture. There's this beautiful arc of this image of God where we see that value. We can under, we can make sense of our world in the understanding of the fall because of sin affecting um, all of our world. And then the hope that we have in Christ and, and the opportunity to now have a reconciliation with God through what Christ has done, paying the penalty for our sin. So the, the hope of the gospel is the hope of the gospel, I feel like gives such clarity to a lot of the brokenness that we see in our world in that it can give us hope and it can give us access back to our creator through Jesus. And we can make sense of the pain that we have because we know the truth about you know sin. And, and that I think often when we grapple with things like our daughter as a one-year-old facing cancer, like how? But we know the realities um, that we see in scripture. We know that we're in a fallen world. We live in a world that is affected by sin and marred by by um, just the, the fall. And so when we face these things, we know that we still have a good God who cares and who has made a way for us to have hope through him. Well, Lauren, uh, how engaged historically, in your opinion? I, I mean, it seems like from what you said, whether it's uh, the issue of the sanctity of human life in terms of uh, the subject of abortion or human trafficking uh, and a lot of these others, it seems like the church, Christians are quite engaged in the present moment, but what about historically? Has the church been uh, engaged in these uh, issues relating to human dignity and the image of God? Yeah, it's really neat to understand the this concept in from a historical lens and see all the ways that that has applied in every culture. So, you know, we've talked today about there are lots of specific ways that this understanding of the image of God can apply in our cultural moment. But you look all through church history and you see believers taking the same understanding and applying it to the context that they're in. So even in first and second century Christianity, so so right after Christianity was birthed and it was growing, um, there were Christians who living out this understanding were saving babies who had been thrown out into the trash heaps. And so um, if, if there was an unwanted child, often it, it was, unfortunately, often it was girls were thrown into the trash heaps if a family did not want that child. Um, the Christians were the ones going and saving these babies, were adopting these babies as their own um, so again, you see that kind of the pro-life ethic there lived out in first and second century Roman Empire. Uh, you see, you know, in a more uh, contemporary t- moment to where we're at, you see the civil rights movement. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a pastor. He yep. was a pastor and was motivated by his faith, what his he read in the Bible, what his understanding of scripture and about human life to uh, you know, lead in a movement that said, hey, all people have value and, and we should not treat people as lesser than and with as which was happening in slavery. So, um, you know, there's there's so many other examples throughout history. We could kind of be, okay, where was, a, where was a moment where believers were applying this this theological understanding and this ethic to their current moment 
and wanting to show value to all of life and care well for those who were vulnerable or who were seen as having less power and saying, hey, no, we value all people regardless of, um, of anything, you know, because they are human beings created in the image of God. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Lauren McAfee, co-editor along with Dr. David Dockery of the new book, Created in the Image of God. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Kim Riddlebarger urging us to think biblically about the Antichrist. So I think it's, it's just mm. foolish to speculate about various politicians. You know, Ronald Reagan, six letters in his name, yeah. Gorbachev had the, had the splotch on his head, you know, the birthmark, that was back at the end of the forehead. I think that stuff is, is fascinating and wrong. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.